Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. Today we feature the music from the Sugarland Express. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Hello and a very big welcome to you and thanks for taking the time to join me for this episode. Some of you might be counting the Sugarland Express as the first big film score for John Williams since it would begin a collaboration with director Steven Spielberg that continues to this day. I would partially agree with that sentiment, but you have to understand that neither Spielberg nor Williams knew what the future held for their careers when they first met for lunch in late 1972. Williams apparently had so much enthusiasm for Spielberg's first theatrical release that he promised to do the score long before the first scene was filmed. For all Williams knew, this Spielberg kid, who was about 15 years younger than Williams, might not make it very far in Hollywood. Williams had certainly encountered many such directors in his time in the business. But there's a significance for this film that most people might not know. This was only the third time that Williams was working with a first-time director. He wrote music for Frank Sinatra's only time as director, None But the Brave, and was the music supervisor for Herbert Ross on Goodbye Mr. Chips. So Williams was putting a lot of trust in Spielberg by taking on this project. For Spielberg, this was his lifelong dream, and he had a lot to lose if the film failed. He'd done a TV movie called Duel, which featured a sadistic truck driver making a regular man's life a living hell, and it was well received. But that was a TV movie. The good reviews for Duel, however, gave him confidence to approach Richard Zanuck and David Brown, two producers who had an extensive career in Hollywood but were branching out into a career as producers. Zanuck was president of 20th Century Fox in the 1960s, while Brown was a journalist before the two met and agreed to form their own production company. The Sugarland Express was going to be their first film, and Spielberg's pitch as director meant the film would feature, essentially, a first-time director and two first-time producers. Those who might be big fans of the Zanuck and Brown collaboration might argue that the film Willie Dynamite from spring 1974 was their first film, but really, let's just assume that film about New York City's number one pimp never happened. Knowing that the producers and director were still wet behind the ears, the Sugarland Express doesn't look like a novice production. There are lots of crowd scenes, which are very difficult to control as producers, and tough to shoot as a director. The car crashes are well done, too. But if there's a flaw to the film, it's Spielberg's inability to make us feel for the two main characters, a married couple breaking the law in order to reunite with their young son. I don't think this is an issue Spielberg ever has truly solved. Many of his films focus too much on the spectacle and not on the actors, which can greatly affect our enjoyment of the film. I've seen this movie three times, and I began to lose interest in the proceedings at the same place every time. It's when the couple, Lugene and Clovis, 
as well as the policeman they've taken hostage in his cruiser, rest for the night in a used car lot. It's one thing to give the audience time to breathe in an action film, but there's a major shift in the acting at this point. Goldie Hawn, who plays Lugene, turns her Texas accent up a notch and it becomes too shrill. I stopped really caring if the two convicts would get to Sugarland, Texas and get their baby back. I only wanted the film to get there so the film could get resolved. Along the way, John Williams' score kept my interest going. While the instrumentation feels a bit like he's writing for a western, it's still rooted in the present day, and that's exemplified by the bass guitar in some places. It must be said that Williams' score fits the Sugarland Express perfectly. It sounds as dusty as the highways on which our three main characters travel, and gives the composer the ability to stretch his talents a bit further than he had before. Williams got a few notable musicians to help him on the score. Toots Thielmans brings his virtuoso work on the harmonica to this score, and it gives the music a lot of personality. In terms of the timeline, this score was recorded in July 1973, and that's a couple of months before Williams and Thielmans would work together on Cinderella Liberty. So, when you talk about Thielmans and Williams working together, it's important to know they collaborated first on the Sugarland Express, even though Cinderella Liberty was put into theaters six months before it. Unfortunately, only Thielmans got screen credit for his work on the Sugarland Express. Bass guitar player Carol Kay, who performed on the original theme for Mission Impossible and also on the song The Way We Were, brings her talents to the Sugarland Express. And Tommy Tedesco, whose guitar playing can be heard on so many pop songs that it would take an hour to list them all, stepped into the studio for a bit of work with Williams. We get to hear Tedesco, Kay, and Thielmans on the music for the opening credits of the Sugarland Express. And its highlight is a long line theme on the harmonica. If a song were to be composed from this theme, the first part you hear might be the verse, while the melody on the higher range of the notes could be the chorus. The music in the opening credits doesn't come back into the underscore for quite some time. Most of it features music to highlight the environment more than the characters or actions. For example, 
The music played when Lou Jean sneaks her husband out of prison starts with a steel guitar riff, followed by what I initially put down in my notes as, quote, foot stomping, but might actually just be some interesting percussion playing. That's followed by some syncopated notes on the harmonica. I thought this was the kind of music you might hear on the porch of a West Texas house on a warm summer day. It sounds like nothing John Williams had written, yet it sounds so much like Williams' work at the same time. After Lugene and Clovis escape the jail, they steal an old couple's car with a police officer named Maxwell Slide in pursuit. The ensuing car chase gets no music, a nod perhaps to the popular car chase in Bullet five years earlier. Once Lugene and Clovis crash their car, they hijack the police car with Slide going along for the ride. The West Texas porch music comes back as they take off for the road trip to Sugarland. It didn't take long for the Texas police force to get wind of the situation. It reaches a certain Captain Tanner, played by Oscar winner Ben Johnson, who leads the caravan of police cars following Lugene and Clovis to their destination. The music for the police force is bold and menacing, relying almost exclusively on percussion with some intimidating strings flowing in and out. Thank you. 
Williams liked that music so much he continued it a short time later as our convicts drive through a roadblock. The piano comes in with low notes, and the strings go lower on the register a couple of times to highlight the danger we see. Our West Texas porch music comes back one more time in a fairly comic scene when the convicts run out of gas. With one of his men as a hostage, the only thing Captain Tanner can do is give the hijacked car a push to the nearest gas station. During this scene, Tanner and Lugene have a brief moment as Lugene writes high on the back window with her finger. Toots Thielman is right there to add a little bit of tenderness to the scene. And that's the last major moment of underscore we get for about 70 minutes. There are a couple of short music moments before that, but the soundtrack is mostly filled with the sound of gunshots and car crashes. Williams makes a return to the film in the final eight minutes of film after Clovis has been shot and he gets back in the car to try and make a run for the Mexican border. I'm not sure if this is Tedesco's guitar or Kay's guitar, but there's an ethereal guitar playing the main theme as the situation reaches its inevitable conclusion.
Clovis is too injured to drive, and he runs the car into a riverbank. He dies from his injuries, and Lugene goes to prison. The final shot of the movie is its most beautiful. Cinematographer Vilmos Zygmunt, who would work with Spielberg again on Close Encounters of the Third Kind and win an Oscar for it, shoots Maxwell's slide in silhouette on the river's edge near sunset as he deals with the events of the past few days. And to make the shot even more beautiful, Toots Thielmans gives us a somber reprise of the main theme, as somber as a harmonica can get. Tommy Tedesco is also there with his guitar, and I love how the strings flow in during the breaks at the harmonica. Thank you. 
The first two times I watched the film, I don't think I noticed that much the lack of music for 70 minutes. I don't think Williams went that long of a stretch without music in any of his previous films, and we'll probably never know why we get no music. Before I discuss that further, there is the matter of the soundtrack release we have to explore. Now, there was no commercial release of the score to the Sugarland Express, not in 1974 or any time later. This is the only score that Williams wrote for Spielberg that has never seen a commercial release. Williams composed a concert suite of music that has appeared on his best of CDs and has been played in concert. I attended one concert where Williams was the conductor and he included this on his program. I vividly remember there hardly being any discussion of the score or the significance of working with Spielberg on the Sugarland Express at that concert. Over the years, John Williams' fans have speculated as to why there has never been a soundtrack release. Perhaps the master tapes of the recordings were destroyed or lost. The common belief is that Williams has refused any request to have this score released commercially. If he served as producer of the score, he certainly has complete control over that decision. So, with no official commercial release, fans had to resort to other options to get this score heard away from the film. I have listened to two bootleg prints of the score, and it's uncertain how the music was obtained, but for better or worse, it's great to have this score plucked from the film. Both bootleg CDs feature music not heard in the film, including music that it seems was written for that music-free 70 minutes. So that makes me wonder if the music comes directly from the original recording somehow. I don't think the people who created the bootleg will ever tell. Here's a sample of the music that was probably composed for those music-free 70 minutes. There's a scene in which Lou Jean needs to stop and go to the bathroom. A porta potty is brought into a field for Lou Jean to use, and Clovis figures out that there's a police officer waiting inside to ambush them. After the cop runs off, Lou Jean uses the porta potty. On one of the bootlegs, there's a track called Bathroom Break which seems to mean this music was lightly meant for this scene.
this West Texas porch music definitely does not fit the scene. So it's a great idea to have that scene without music. So here's the thing about the Sugarland Express. It didn't wow the critics who blasted its focus on big car crashes. But it did pretty well for a film made by a first-time 27-year-old director, raking in $12 million, about $9 million more than its budget. Before the movie even started post-production, Richard Zanuck and David Brown knew they had a future star in their hands. And after their top two choices turned it down, the producers asked Spielberg to direct a film about a shark that terrorizes a seaside community. By the time the receipts started coming in for the Sugarland Express, Spielberg was already setting up camp in Martha's Vineyard for the production of Jaws. As for John Williams, he probably wasn't told about this upcoming movie about a menacing shark while he was working on the score to the Sugarland Express. He still had to record the score to Cinderella Liberty in early fall 1973, with Toots Thielmans joining him. The Sugarland Express was the fourth film score in a row for John Williams to feature a harmonica, and that instrument told a very different story every time. Thielmans was only part of the score for Cinderella Liberty and the Sugarland Express, but he lent its talents on the harmonica to many more films. My favorite of them all is his work on The Wiz, which I will call one of the best movie musicals of all time until my dying breath. As I have previously mentioned on this broadcast, Williams and his family suffered heartbreak in March 1974 when his wife of 18 years, Barbara Ruick, died of a sudden cerebral hemorrhage. Williams has not talked in detail about the effect of her death on his life from a personal standpoint, but based on the timeline of his film assignments, he took the first half of 1974 to properly grieve and reshape his life as the sole parent for his three teenage children. And when that mourning period ended, Williams had the perfect way to commemorate his wife. He set out to write a symphony in her honor, a task that would take him two years to complete. We'll discuss this symphony when we get to 1976. So when the Sugar Land Express debuted at the Cannes Film Festival in spring 1974, Williams was likely not there as part of the entourage. The film did well there, winning Best Screenplay, and it just really set up a great career for Spielberg, who, as I said, was already getting ready to shoot Jaws. Williams was also ready to get back to work in summer 1974 when Mark Robson called to bring Williams back into the disaster film realm. At the same time, Irwin Allen sought out Williams for his follow-up to The Poseidon Adventure. So, Williams closed out 1974 with two disaster films, both of which would be very successful and earn him the title of the disaster genre's type composer. Luckily for Williams, that genre would peter out in the late 1970s. And Jaws was likely the reason why the disaster film genre died a quick death in the 1970s. No other film was going to be able to top what Jaws did. So in the next episode, we'll discuss the film Earthquake and its score. I'm looking forward to talking with you about it, and in the days between each episode, I love reading comments from listeners, so please keep them coming. Some of your insights into John Williams have been very interesting, some of which I have never considered. One of my readers, who only signed his email as Mike W., said he read that Bernard Herman, who was good friends with John Williams, suggested Williams as Alfred Hitchcock's new composer after Hitchcock and Herman had a falling out in the early 1970s. Mike said he read somewhere that Hitchcock didn't like Williams' composition style, 
But I guess Hitchcock changed his mind when he asked Williams to write a score for Family Plot in 1976. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's end the episode here, and I'll be back next time to talk about Earthquake, which might seem too real of a movie for those living in the Los Angeles area right now. Thanks to everyone for listening, and until we meet again, the baton is down. Thank you.